Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 115, The Epic of Gilgamesh, part one. Can I can I just say, can I get it out of the way and say that this episode is epic? I like it a lot. I had no idea. Like I think I I think I was meant to read some of the Epic of Gilgamesh in world history and then didn't. That sounds right. But I should have because this story is wild and we're so excited to bring it to you. We are very very excited at the uh, at the moment of recording this. We are going to record this intro and then record part 2. And Amanda, I'm so excited just for the whole story in general. It's going to be great. I can't wait. I can't wait. Also, welcome. You chose a great time and a great episode to have your name read out to Paige and Ross Papa, the Multitude Super Patron, for joining our Patreon. Thank you. I recognized that name when it popped up in our email. I'm like, hello. Hello, friend. We met Ross at our Multitude Live show, and he was awesome. Yeah. And thank you, as always, to the supporting producers whose support is truly epic. Some of them, actually, it's their three-year anniversary as patrons because our first Patreon started three years ago. Oh, I'm going to cry now. No. Uh, so thank you. Philip, Julie, Eeyore, Kathy, Vinny, Danica, Marissa, Sammy, Josie, Amara, Neil, Jessica, Phil Fresh, and Deborah, as well as our legendary legend level patrons, some of whom have been with us since month one. Jordan, Jess, Sarah, Zoe, Sandra, Audra, Mercedes, Jack Marie, and Leanne Davis, our love. We know that someday there will be an epic written about you, and it'll be as old and as memorable as the Epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, so sweet. Uh, Julia, tell me what we were drinking this episode, because I'm going to have more of it for this one. Yes. Uh, so I made cedar smoked old fashions, which I know old fashions and Manhattans are some of your favorite drinks. And cedar oh, yeah. plays such an important role in the story that I had to I had to give it a little bit of a twist. I also super needed a drink with me on this uh, epic adventure. Yeah. It's it gets it gets wild and it gets intense and a little bit of alcohol never hurt anyone. Speaking of uh, packing snacks for your journey, we'd love to thank our two sponsors this week, Mrs. Fields, who uh, is the source that you need for your Valentine's Day gifts. It's next week. Don't worry about it. The code spirits will get you 20 percent off at mrsfields.com and care of which makes personalized vitamins super easy to order. Go to takecareof.com with code spirits 50 for half off your first month. Amanda, you want to know what I've been what I've been digging lately besides podcasting? Because obviously I'm always digging podcasting. Ooh, please. Uh, Jake and I sat down on, I guess, what what day was the first day of uh, February? <laughs> I don't know anymore. Uh, Friday. On Friday, we sat down and we watched Amy Poehler and Natasha Leone's new show on Netflix called Russian Doll. Ooh, I didn't know Amy Poehler was in that. A- Amy Poehler wrote it. She Ooh, didn't. Wow. Uh, she didn't. She's not in it, but she wrote it, and it's very, very good. I am an absolute sucker for any kind of like time loop or Groundhog's Day style like TV show or film, uh, and yeah. this scratched all of my itches, and I loved it so much. Oh, that sounds awesome. I also wanted to mention that I was on a friend of the show, Emma Scherzarko's podcast, Pairing, talking all about the Old Kingdom trilogy: Sabriel, Lyriel, Abhorson, Clariel all kinds. And I realized I've been pronouncing those names wrong. So Emma just brings the research, brought the conversation, brought the wine metaphors. It was great. Look up the podcast pairing. Uh, And you also might remember Emma from our Tolkien uh, episode. So if you liked what Emma had to say on those topics, I'm sure you're going to love everything she has to say uh, on pairing. Also, you were fantastic in it, by the way. Oh, thanks. (laughs) 
I could, we talked for about an hour and change. I could have talked for four hours about yep. those books. God, I love it. But Garth Nix liked one of my tweets about it. So I think I've, uh, I've just completed my whole life's journey. We just need him on the show now. Oh, if only. Please add Garth Nix to tell him We can to get come. Garth Nix. And finally, we would love to thank those of you who have been sending us gifts to the P.O. Box. We just got the most gorgeous embroidery from Luke and his wife. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Uh, Amanda sent me a picture of it, and then I cried for about five minutes. <laughs> well, if you want to make us cry and send us cute boxes with skulls drawn on them, the clerk at the FedEx was like, what's this? As she saw the skulls <laughs> drawn on the side of the box. And I was like, I have a podcast about mythology. Do you want to hear about it? It was great. Anyway, that's at spiritspodcast.com. You can find the address to our PO box also on multitude.productions. Our multitude website lists all of the other shows in our collective and the mailing address for all of us. Yeah. Not, we're not asking you to send us stuff, but we also won't be mad if you send us stuff. If you're moved to do so, you may. But the way to show your love is to tweet us or tell a friend about spirits. Please. All right. Well, without further ado, enjoy Spirits Podcast, Episode 115, The Epic of Gilgamesh, Part 1. Today, Amanda, I have a special treat for you. Back when I was reading Edith Hamilton's mythology for the first time, uh, which basically shaped me into the baby mythology queer that I am today, mm -hmm. uh, I came across another story in the same section of the library. I didn't really quite get it at the time. I think like I saw the word epic and being a child of the 90s, I knew that meant good. So oh, yeah. I just dove right into it. Uh, so I picked it up and I brought it home with me. Uh, and now the version of the Epic of Gilgamesh that I read as a kid definitely wasn't the original or even like super accurate to the translation, but I loved it. I really did. The imagery was like evocative and the epic struggles really felt like something substantial and familiar to me, uh, which makes sense given the fact that the imagery we see in the Epic of Gilgamesh can be found in like basically all culture everywhere. I've never read it, but I do know that it was one of the like foundational texts of humanity. So it is very exciting. And it makes a ton of sense that we would see a lot of echoes in other places in the world. Yeah, I mean, my next line was ask Amanda what she knows about the Epic of Gilgamesh. There you go. Yeah, the, just, just that. Uh, so to expand on your points, the Epic of Gilgamesh is an epic poem, arguably the earliest surviving great work of literature as it dates back to 2100 BCE. Wow, that is freaking early. There's actually only one surviving version of the combined epic, which is made up of five Sumerian poems. So these were several independent stories that were combined into the epic. There are 12 established tablets that make up the whole epic, though it is said by some historians that the 12th is more of like a sequel than a direct connection to the story and that it was added to the story at a later date. But it's pretty damn impressive to have most of the text still today. Also, physical tablets, like someone carved these into Wild. tablets. Like Dan Brown had a wet dream about uh, old tablets that someone turned up in some cave and that man happens to be a rakishly handsome American professor who doesn't listen to any women around him or any people from the place he discovered it. Only true. Pretty much. Actually, there is a, I'll make a reference to the British academic from the University of London, uh, Andrew George, who is the one that translated the version that we're going to be talking about today, what was basically what you just described. No, I don't want to defame this poor professor. Uh, he like translated in the 50s, so he's probably older oh, yeah, dead no, at probably, this point. 
probably uh, probably has some problematic opinions. The translation we're discussing will be the Andrew George version. I'm sure there are other ones out there. Uh, this is the most widely kind of uh, circulated version of it. So um, if you have a better version, such as like when Emily Wilson translated the Odyssey, it's better because you're not having the white male context of the story. Uh, if you have a better version of the Epic of Gilgamesh as translated, please let me know. I want to read it. Yeah, this is probably the beginning of our understanding and appreciation of Gilgamesh and not the end. Uh, with that, I think we're going to jump right into the story because there's a lot to cover. I'm ready. Uh, so the story introduces in the first tablet Gilgamesh, who is the king of Uruk. Uh, Uruk, by the way, if I mispronounce something, it's because I don't speak ancient Sumerian. I apologize. Doing our best. If if you do speak ancient Sumerian fluently, come at me. But also, I'm sorry. Uh, so Uruk was a ancient city of Sumer and was located on the eastern shore of the Euphrates River. So anyone who has taken a world civilizations class knows that this is like the Fertile Crescent. It's one of the most fertile places in the area, in an area that is usually quite arid. A side note, actually, some historians believe that the city of Uruk was actually the same city as the biblical city of Erik, uh, which is one of the cities that was founded by Nimrod. That is super exciting. And I am really here for like ancient mysteries being solved. I think it's awesome. I do love an ancient mystery. We should have a TV show where it's like ancient mysteries, but it's not aliens and it's not racist. Oh, I mean, Julia, what is left then if you if you judge by like programming on the History Channel today? If I if I'm saying what's left, it's like actual depictions of history and not like weird, like sensationalized versions of it. Yes, this is true. History is interesting on its own. Yeah. We don't need to like add ancient aliens to it. Mm -mm. Nope. We can just appreciate other people and realize that humanity isn't necessarily just on like a 45 degree angle upward. Like we there, we peaked on some things in the past and maybe we will in the future. Yes, I agree. This is one of the topics I get really frustrated about. So listen, we just want a TV show. We're not going to lie. Just give us a TV show, please. Let us travel. Let us drink in local bars. Let us talk about ghosts. Gilgamesh, king of the city, uh, was said to be two-thirds god and one-third man. I don't really know <laughs> how that math works. I think it was like father was a demigod, mother was an actual god. I just love it. I feel like it's a it's a really good like Tinder bio first line. Two-thirds god, one-thirds man. Long walks on the beach. Hit me up. Got a cute dog. What more do you need to know? And so Gilgamesh was uh, not a good dude. No. He oppressed his people. He was not a kind mm. king. And in particular, uh, one of the things that they mentioned that he abused was the quote unquote Lord's right. Do you know what that is? No, but it sounds bad. It's the idea that like a king or lord can sleep with a bride on their wedding night before their husband does. Ah, nerds. That's no yeah. good. Um and so Gilgamesh, according to the tablet, abused liberally. And for them to to call that to like an abuse of that right, which is itself already abusive, that must be, that must be, yikes. Or Sumer knew what was up. For young men, Gilgamesh forced them into tests of strength and games and forced them into laborious projects. Basically, uh, by exhausting them this way, uh, they were less likely to rise up and like try to overthrow him. Yikes, man. Yeah, it's not good. Like, we're starting off with a not good dude here. But hopefully there's some kind of redemption journey. Yeah, we'll see. Um, <laughs> so Gilgamesh, not a good dude. And as such, the people called out to the gods asking them for help. Uh, and because it wouldn't be much of an epic if they didn't, the gods responded. 
the gods decided the best way to handle Gilgamesh was to create a man that was equal to Gilgamesh so that he could challenge the king. Okay. The man they created was Enkidu, uh, a man that lived in the wild with the animals and according to the story was covered in hair, which like Enkidu Bigfoot confirmed. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I'm just I'm just kidding. That's, you know, he was just like a wild dude who didn't know how to shave. It's like uncivilized, you know. Quote, unquote. Um. So Enkidu was described as a primitive man compared to Gilgamesh, who was in this story the epitome of civilization. We find out about Enkidu after a hunter reports that a wild man has been pulling up his traps. And he doesn't tell the king because the king is kind of an asshole. Instead, he tells the sun god Shamash. Shamash is also known as Utu. And you might remember him as being the twin brother of our goddess Inanna. Inanna. Top 10, man. She's great. So he's also the god of injustice and morality. So Shamash decides he's going to send Shamat, a temple prostitute, which is an actual role in the temple associated with sexual right and religious worship. They were a sex worker that would do sex work to appease the gods, basically. Hmm. Like a lot of a lot of religions tend to be a little like slut shamey with their priestesses right. and stuff like that. Uh, but there was a specific role in the temple that was designated for sex work. And this is the words that are used in the translation, I guess. Yes, gotcha. it is. So like a temple prostitute, I could talk about this a little bit more if we want to, but like basically a role in which like ritualistic magic or ritual was done through sex. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so he decides to send uh, that woman, Shamat, uh, to sleep with Enkidu. Uh, and that is exactly what happens. Six days and seven nights, or two weeks, depending on which scholar translated it, Shamat slept with Enkidu and taught him the ways of civilization. So we're using sex to teach a man about civilization. There's just a lot here. There's just a lot here. Yeah, th- it's basically the gif of uh, John Mulaney go, well, we don't have time to unpack all of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. I do think it's really interesting, though, that this is like predicated on, you know, justice uh, like human justice and governance has failed the people. So they need to like reach up to the gods. And that that's just like an interesting worldview because a lot of the time, like spirituality is considered to be outside the state or sometimes spirituality like legitimizes and powers the state. So this is really interesting where it's like, you know, maybe the, obviously I'm just guessing, but like maybe the, the perfect situation is that, you know, uh, human beings can take care of their own affairs unless the gods really need to intercede. And in this case, sounds like they really do. There are many instances in history where it's basically they use like the divine right as a reason why right. either people are overthrown or um, why like a certain person comes into power and the, someone else loses it. Right. So I think that this is one of those instances where the people are basically relying on the divine right to intercede on their behalf. Yeah. Which is very, very interesting. I like that a lot. We're going to have some great conversations about this episode. I could tell already. When they are done, Shamat takes Enkidu to a shepherd's camp for more civilized man training. You know, it's like, oh, well, now that you've slept with me for about a week, um, we can take you to other people and you can learn how to like be a person. Man, I don't know. There's just... Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna meditate on that. Uh, so Gilgamesh, up until this point, is unaware of Enkidu, uh, but he's having these weird dreams about how there's like a new beloved companion that was to come to him soon, Ooh. and he's like, "That seems strange. You know who I should talk to this about? My mom." So uh, upon waking, they have left Gilgamesh is intrigued, and so he goes to his mother Ninsun to help him understand what the dreams meant. Side note, Ninsun is also a goddess and the reason that Gilgamesh is part god. So we move on to tablet two. That's all tablet one. Ooh. There are 12 tablets. A lot of exposition. A lot of stuff happening. There's 
Lots happening here. So we move on to Tablet 2, which opens with Shamat at the shepherd's camp with Enkidu. Uh, Enkidu is learning how to, quote, eat a human diet because he's been living in the woods and hunting and gathering, I suppose. So he's been acting as the night watchman for the shepherds as well. And it's at this camp that Enkidu hears about all the shitty things that Gilgamesh has been doing in Yurik. And he is pissed. Like he, like he is particularly pissed about the Lord's right thing. So I guess the the gods kind of created and introduced him with like a sense of morality, which is awesome because that seems to be like the very thing Gilgamesh is lacking. Exactly. I like it. And like just instinctively, he's like, this is wrong yeah. and I need to stop it. I wonder if um if Mary Shelley was familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh because the creature is born without language, without morality, without uh, feeling or love and uh, learns that over the course of the novella and then like makes his creator, Frankenstein, look immoral and unhuman because the creature feels and loves and like is and appreciates so much more than his creator did. Um, And I'm just seeing echoes here that I think are really interesting. That is such an interesting point. And I feel like we should talk about it a little bit more towards the end of the episode. Enkidu, super pissed about the Lord's right thing. So he decides to leave the camp angrily and that he's going to intervene in a wedding in Uruk. Okay. Uh, So when Gilgamesh arrives at a wedding and tries to enter the bride's bedchamber, Enkidu is there blocking his path. Hell yeah. And they fight. It's a very like dramatic moment because this once wild man decides he's going to go ahead and fight the king of the goddamn city mm-hmm. over like moral issues. Yeah. So they fight for a while and it's super fierce, but Enkidu acknowledges Gilgamesh's superior strength. Enkidu is just a man, whereas Gilgamesh is still two thirds god. So going to have that kind of right. more strength there. And strangely enough, uh, in like classic man stuff, I guess they become friends. Okay, didn't see that one coming. It's it's like, "Mm, you're stronger than me. I accept that. We're going to be friends now. And thus Gilgamesh's dream comes true because now he's got a brand new friend. Okay. Does he teach him uh, better ways of living? Well, their first foray into their friendship, uh, Gilgamesh decides that they need to journey to the nearby cedar forest to slay a demigod. I mean, that's one way to bond. I feel like instead you usually like go to the mall, but um, we can do that too. The demigod's name is Humbaba, and Gilgamesh wants to kill him in order to gain notoriety and fame. And despite Enkedu and his council of elders telling him this is a bad idea, Gilgamesh insists they go anyway. Yikes. Gilgamesh crushing it. It's all great. Quick side note about Humbaba. Uh, in other Mesopotamian stories, Humbaba is the guardian of the forest, uh, not just some like terrifying creature. He works with the will of Enlil, who is the storm god. Uh, Enlil did tell Humbaba to be a terror to human beings, and it is said that he, quote, when he looks at someone, it is the look of death, and Humbaba's roar is a flood, his mouth is death, and his breath is fire. He can hear a hundred leagues away any rustling in his forest. Who would go down into his forest? The answer is Gilgamesh. This god sounds amazing, and I want to hang with him. Please don't tell me he dies. Uh, no. We'll get there. We'll get there. All it's right. All good. Listen, I bet there is Epic of Gilgamesh fanfic on AO3. So I will just use that to soothe my soul. Hey, bud, they're 100%. Oh, is. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, and I want to talk about this probably, spoiler alert, this is going to be two episodes. Ooh. I want to talk about this later in episode two. But uh, Inkendu and Gilgamesh are like very much seen as like queer aligned characters. Yes. 
We're on tablet three now. Somewhat shorter, actually. It basically starts with the Council of Elders giving Gilgamesh advice on his journey, like a council should do. True. Thank you, council. Thank you. Doing your jobs. Gilgamesh also visits his mother for advice. For her son, Ninsun reaches out to Shamash for protection as he makes his journey. Also, to be safe and, like, gain protection for him as well, Ninsun adopts Kendu as her own son. Aww. It's very, very sweet. Like, imagine your child came home and was like, hey, mom, this is my new best friend. And we're going to go on a wild adventure without any protection. Okay, see you later. Like, you're just like, no, stop one second. Let me adopt this child so he too can be safe. Yeah, nothing like pulls at my heartstrings like stories of people adopting like their kids' friends uh, b- because they are in need. Like, I think that's just awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is like some straight up Molly Weasley shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's just like, oh, this child makes my child happy. Oh, no, this is mine now. The best Weasley. I must protect. For sure. Yeah. As an oldest child, I'm pretty partial to Bill. And I think his character journey is really interesting. Um, mm. But yeah, I would I would go like Molly, Bill, Charlie, George, Fred. Fred, George. I'm not going to take a... I'm going to say gonna Fred say, slash George. Wow. I'm, not, I'm not going to take a stand there. Ginny, Ron, Percy. Cool. Yeah. All right. I feel Arthur's like- okay. Arthur's in the middle somewhere. All right. Moving on. Gilgamesh also leaves instructions to the Council of Elders, basically telling them how to run the city while he's gone, which is like, again, super great ruler, just like leaving some people in charge. Be like, hey, you know, while I'm gone on this really dangerous journey, just assume I'm alive and like run the business until I get back. You know, I'm going to take it back. I think it's Molly, Ginny, Bill, Charlie, Fred George, Arthur, Ron. Percy. That's gonna be my ranking. I'm glad we <laughs> we like established this real, <laughs> was, real important to I was the story like, of Gilgamesh. Oh, I, sorry, but I didn't want people to think that I don't value Ginny as she is due. I appreciate it. It's all right. So yeah, uh, that's tablet three. We're done with that. Okay. I'm gonna get into the rest of the ta- or at least halfway through our tablets for this episode. But Amanda, why don't we like go ahead and take a refill? Let's do it. Julia, we are actually going to be together on Valentine's Day and Valentine's Day as we travel to Portland for our live show, which is very funny. And I think it's very suitable. There's no one I'd rather spend a romantic day with, Amanda, except for my (laughs) husband. But yeah, you know, we make sacrifices for our art. Um, But I can think of one way that you can bring the sort of holiday with you, which is with a delicious treat that maybe Jake would buy for you. As a little Valentine's Day gift. To be fair, I don't have much of a sweet tooth, but Jake loves anything sweet, cookie related, brownie related, anything like that. So he would flip if I got him some Mrs. Fields cookies for Valentine's Day. Yo! Mrs. Fields is the absolute way to get to someone's heart, which is through their stomach. Like that's that's how it's supposed to work. And this Valentine's Day, you could maybe order something, get it sent to the house, have Jake open it when you're not there. It'd be very sweet. Aww. But Mrs. Fields is the source for delicious treats. They have chocolate chip cookies, melt-in-your-mouth brownies. I had a blondie that I absolutely loved that I told you about last time. Um, Everything is baked fresh, prepared daily, so they always arrive fresh and flavorful. They're not like all preservative BS. It is super easy to order, and they can ship your gift anywhere in the U.S. Amanda, did you know that they're doing chocolate-covered strawberries for Valentine's Day this year? (gasps) No, I may have to use our promo code SPIRITS for 20% off to get myself some of those because Oh my goodness, I love them so much. I'm thinking about it now, for sure. And like Amanda said, right now you can get 20% off your order when you go to mrsfields.com and enter the promo code SPIRITS. That is 20% off any gift for Valentine's Day at mrsfields.com, promo code SPIRITS. That's mrsfields.com, promo code SPIRITS. Thank you. 
So you know that uh, 2019, in my mind, is 2015, the year oh, that I sure do. the year that Julia is going to learn how to professional wrestle, and it's true. I'm doing it. It's very very cool. But you know what's been really helping me, like both with like staying active and my recovery, it's been care of. Ooh, Care Of. Tell me what that's all about. Uh, So Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. You get a 30-day subscription. They get 30 little packs that are kind of stacked up in a little box that get sent right to your house. And it's absolutely fantastic. So I've kind of like made the decision, 2019 is going to be my year to get healthy and fit and also like be able to throw dudes over my shoulders. That is the most important reason to pursue any fitness regime. Yeah. Uh, So I set out and I built a vitamin routine that was designed to help me recover from my workouts, increase uh, increase my energy, get my sleep back in order. And it was really easy because Care Of has this fun online quiz that asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. And it only takes like five minutes to do. And then you get a personalized pack of vitamins based on what you're looking for like they're just like oh yeah you you seem like you need some vitamin d here you go vitamin d i think most people could use vitamin d but that's that sounds really great and you know it's one thing to like walk to a drugstore and look at all the options and be like i don't know but having someone help guide your purchases sounds like a really really good idea and those little tiny packets oh so cute they have like little inspirational quotes on them too and i and i will say like when i was taking the quiz and when they made the supplement suggestions for me you could click through to articles to kind of like read the science behind why these things are good for the thing that they're suggesting it for that's awesome so I, I really, really liked it. Well, if you want to try Care Of, you can go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code SPIRITS50 for 50% off your first month of personalized Care Of vitamins. So go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code SPIRITS50 for 50% off your first month. Thanks so much. Now let's get back to the show. All right. Tablet four. We are heading to the Cedar Forest, which, by the way, I I forgot to mention this earlier. It's not just a Cedar Forest. The Cedar Forest is the realm of the gods. Oh, boy. Forgot to mention that before. Uh, So our boys, they're just going to like go head to the realm of the gods to kill a demigod. I feel like this is definitely the tablet subtitled like Cedar Drift. (laughs) Is this the Tokyo Drift of the uh, the Gilgamesh franchise? It is, and it smells really good. It smells delicious. Gonna go kill that demigod in the realm of the gods. Cool, fine, totally okay. Okay, whatever, bond however you need to. Masculinity is hard. Definitely something we should be doing. So the Cedar Forest is located to the east of Uruk. The speculated real world location of the Cedar Forest is probably the Zargos Mountains in Iran, Mm. what is modern day Iran. As they travel, they camp and every few days they perform this dream ritual, basically, so they can like kind of like have foresight into how the journey is going to go. Okay. They perform it five times, and Gilgamesh has five completely horrifying dreams. They feature falling mountains, thunderstorms, wild bulls, a huge bird that breathes fire. And now these themes and imagery are all super similar to how Humbaba is described, but Nkindu is like, hey man, it's all good. Falling mountains, thunderstorms, that just means we're going to go and kick some butt. Mm, I don't think so. Gilgamesh is like, ah, I don't know about that. I really, I'm not entirely sure. But Nkindu is like, how could it be about Mbaba? It's fine. We're going to kill him. It's all good. So basically, he tells Gilgamesh that he's worrying too much. Like a good friend, he tells you, your anxiety is nothing to worry about. And your feelings are invalidated. I mean, except for when it is something to worry about. (laughs) I think in this situation, 
the anxiety is well placed. I mean, it's not even anxiety. It's just like a logical conclusion from this, from the data you're receiving from, I don't yeah. know, your divine dreams. I don't know, maybe. So they finally make their way to the cedar forest. And as they approach the edge, they can hear Humbaba bellowing from below. Because again, like we said, he can hear anyone in his forest from oh, like right. 100 leagues away. So the tablet ends with the two men assuring each other that everything will be fine and they should not be afraid. This is a great epic poem. Lots of ups and downs here. So they head into the forest and immediately, of course, they run into Humbaba. Like, just find your target right off the bat. It's like when you enter a, like... In a video game, when you enter a certain area and all of a sudden the music hits and you're like, ah, shit, I'm hitting the <laughs> boss level right away. I thought you were going to say in laser tag where somebody employs the age old strategy of just like fading back a little bit right outside the entrance and then they can like go after you. I haven't played laser tag in so long. We should do a multitude outing of laser tag. That'd be awesome. There's a place in Queens. I was going to say, there's probably some really good places mm-hmm. in New York. Mm-hmm. Run into Humbaba. The demigod throws insults at them and threatens them immediately. Well, you know, first interaction. It's like, yo, by the way, y'all suck. I'm going to establish my dominance with my words first. Uh, which is funny because he's like a monstrous demigod. <laughs> but, you know, let's throw insults instead. So he even accuses Enkidu of betrayal, basically alluding to the fact that Enkidu had been chosen by the gods to challenge Gilgamesh. Yeah. Uh, He also lets Gilgamesh know that he's planning to disembowel him and feed his body to the birds. I mean, yeah, seems like a a fitting end. Uh, Gilgamesh is rightly afraid, but Enkindu encourages him and the fight between the king and the demigod begins. During the battle, it is so violent that the mountains shook and the sky itself turned black. Wow. Like that's how, how epic this battle is. When things begin to look bleak for Gilgamesh, uh, Shamash comes through. Like he promised. Ooh. He sends 13 winds to bind Humbaba, capturing him. So uh, Gilgamesh kind of starts to pity Humbaba, who's like, you know, captured at this point. And he's pleading for his life. And he offers to make Gilgamesh the king of the forest, to be his servant, to cut down the sacred cedar trees for him. Uh, but Enkendu is basically like, hey, that's nice and all. But if you kill him, you'll have notoriety forever. No, why'd this guy straight from the path? The gods made you. And this pisses Humbaba off and he curses the two men and Gilgamesh kills him with a blow to the neck. Oh no. Basically like making the decision for Gilgamesh. Yikes. And those cedar trees that Humbaba offered to cut down for them, Gilgamesh and Nkendu do themselves. Boo. Uh, they build a raft to take them home down the Euphrates and Enkendu reserves one for himself so that he can create a gate for the temple of Enlil. It's not mentioned exactly why he chooses to like build a gate for Enlil for his temple, but I'm assuming that it's because uh, Enkendu is tied to Enlil and also because they slayed Humbaba, who was created by Enlil uh, and in his service. Enkendu wants to make sure to honor that god and win back his favor. The one smart decision that's been made this whole freaking bonding trip. Thanks for making good decisions for once. So now uh, the heroes have managed to do the big fight, win the battle, return home. So you would think that like that would be the end of things, right? Mm, I think we're only on tablet four. Yeah, there are. Well, we're on tablet. We're on like tablet five, but like, they got seven tablets left. This is not the end of the story. Oh, yeah. We're at the halfway point, but That is the one, I think, advantage to ebooks, which is when you're reading and you're like, oh, seems like we're done. Oh, no. You're not like halfway through the book conspicuously on your lap where you're like, well, clearly things can't be right or this can't be the right fork in the path to take because there is still half of this book left. There's so much left here. Oh, no. Um, so we're going to touch on tablet six, which is where we're up to because things were not chill when they got back to Yurik. Oh, no. 
Uh, Gilgamesh returns home only to be approached by our girl, Inanna. What does she say? Well, Inanna, as we remember, is the goddess of love and sexuality, but also civilization and war. Badass lady, we love her. But she heard what was going on and what happened to Humbaba, and so she propositions Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. But Gilgamesh rejects her, no. knowing that she's mistreated her lovers in the past, as you can remember with her husband, Dumuzi, uh, who did not mourn her when she apparently died. Uh-huh. She had demons drag her down to the underworld to replace her. Oh, I remember. Well, Gilgamesh sounds like a freaking double standard, my guy. So Inanna is rightfully pissed. And so she goes to her father to have him send the bull of heaven to avenge her, since Gilgamesh's slight is egregious. It is not good. You don't do that to a goddess. That's fucked up. The bull of heaven sounds great, though. Yeah. Her father, Anu, disagrees and rejects her demands for vengeance. And Inanna, still being the goddess of death and all, threatens to raise the dead so that they outnumber the living and will begin to devour them. I feel like this is Inanna's favorite threat. <laughs> Didn't she do this when her husband... No, no, no. That's Izanami and Izanagi. Oh, shit. Well, anyway, they're learning from each other because this is a great threat. Mm-hmm. So basically, she's like, yo, I'm going to bring some zombies up here. We have zombie lore in this Mesopotamian Sumerian bit. Amazing. How cool is that? Who needs the Odyssey? So this scares Anu, uh, and he yields to his daughter, and Inanna takes the Bull of Heaven to Uruk. Uh, he promptly wrecks the place, basically like that scene with the Titans at the end of Disney's Hercules. Don't remember, but I believe you. Oh, man, no. I watched it once when I was like nine. We got to rewatch it. We could do it for the patrons. That would be nice. I know. We should. All right. So she also manages to dry up the Euphrates, killing the crops and ruining the marshes and causing a sinkhole that swallows 300 men. Yikes. Yeah. This is like intense. Inanna's fury is not to be dealt with. And very like embodied isn't the right word, but very like placed in the geography. Like we're hearing a lot about the settings of all of these myths and that to me always just makes it feel so much more real gilgamesh and enkendu just got back and now they have to deal with this bullshit get it bull bullshit full of heaven so they do of course they do manage to deal with this bullshit and they slay the bull of heaven on their own offering its heart up to shamash inanna witnesses this whole thing and begins to go into a rage which enkendu answers by tossing the bull's butt at her like, the story says hindquarters, but it's like, it's the bull's butt. <laughs> oh. he, he cuts off the bull's butt and just throws it at Inanna. I mean, okay. I see how it's insulting, if not particularly effective. Inanna leaves, and the city of Uruk celebrates because, wow, their king saved them and seems like less of a dick than usual. Like, that's pretty nice. <laughs> For the average person, sinkhole aside, things are kind of looking up. Yeah. Uh, so awesome. Uh, but the tablet ends not with celebrations and festivities, but with the fact that Enkendu has an ominous dream about his future while the rest of the city feasts and celebrates. Ooh, what a good mid-act break. I will say we're going to pause the episode. Don't worry. We're going to be back in two weeks for the second half of the Epic of Gilgamesh. It involves some death, a trip to the underworld, and more of our favorite goddess. I feel like I really do need this break because there is so much to like think about and unpack with just the first half. And I definitely want to mull on that a little bit before we figure out what happens next. Okay, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about those Frankenstein uh, comparisons that you were seeing, because I think that's really, really interesting, given that in Kindu, like, is almost a Gollum-esque creature in that like all of the hopes of the gods are put upon him, yeah. but he still like becomes his own person. Yeah. And like is basically, I won't say corrupted by Gilgamesh, but like his sense of morality shifts from like sleeping with Shamat 
And also like meeting Gilgamesh and then fighting with him and like spending this great journey with him and then coming back. Yeah. And that I think is the aspect that reminds me most of Frankenstein because Frankenstein's creature is really just looking for like love and acceptance. And his creator, Frankenstein, doesn't want to give that to him. He doesn't want to give him language. He doesn't want to like teach him and make him companionship and like be there for him. And and the creature is really rejected. And there's lots of ways to interpret this, but my reading was always that Frankenstein like wanted to see if he could do this as a personal accomplishment, but didn't think about what he was creating. So I'm hearing similarities too, where Enkidu like wants to be his own person. Like he's almost... Um, I don't know, like overcome with the joy of recognition and friendship and acceptance. And so his loyalties will shift to the person who is like giving him the most. And it sounds like the gods created him, but maybe didn't necessarily get that involved in his like upbringing. Right. Because I mean, they like sent a surrogate in their place. Right. In the form of Shamat. Right. So kind of like being almost like a little hands off with it. And it becomes kind of like a weird like nature versus nurture conversation, which is like, you know, problematic in its own sense. The nature versus nurture argument is like a little bit ridiculous. But the idea that like, oh, you know, we can take this clean slate of a man who has never experienced civilization before and turn him into something that is going to fight our battles for us is such an interesting concept. You know what I mean? Yeah, but individuals are individuals and like people have will and they have desires and they're susceptible to flattery and like the the real kind of draw of companionship. Yeah. And like, you know, human beings are corruptible in a lot of ways. The right outside influences can completely change a person, no matter like what their upbringing was or like where they came from. Yeah. And most of the time what people need is like love, acceptance, empathy, understanding. And that can often or should at least have the chance to, you know, redeem a person. So do you think that like Say, if the gods had had more of a hands-on approach with Enkidu, do you think that he probably would have become more of the champion that they wanted to? Like, he wouldn't have gotten corrupted by Gilgamesh in that way? I don't know. I feel like my story-reading brain um, wants the answer to be that if they had given him a choice instead of just giving him a mission, then he would have better understood. Um, Like, they obviously sent an emissary to try to, like, you know, educate him and and like contextualize him in the world. But it feels like they never really expected him to do anything except for accept his mission. And so I'm probably just like reading like individualistic, like post Freudian, you know, like character analysis into this. But like, listen, that's what we're here for. And yeah, like I I think, you know, you can you can have a, a birthright, but being able to at least have the feeling of choice is really necessary. This is interesting to me because like the assumption is Enkidu wasn't completely civilized yet. Like, uh, Shamat had taken him to the shepherd's camp so that he could, like, learn to interact with people more. Right. But he ends up, like, before he's finished his quote-unquote training, hears about Gilgamesh and, like, the shit that he's doing in Uruk and takes off in the middle of the night. So, like, my my thing is, like, would Enkidu, would he have, like, like, would the path be different if he had finished his training and, like, gotten the, like, gotten the actual full mission that the gods wanted him to have rather than just, like, his own moral compass, like, setting him off and telling him, oh, no, I need to go and I need to make this right now. Yeah, it sounds like it. But that's the kind of, you know, irony and, and like tragedy of it, right? Is that he was so enthusiastic that he ends up like compromising his own mission. Yeah. And, and like, I just find that so interesting. Like the idea of the like 
incomplete hero. It's like, um, oh, I'm going to do a Star Wars thing real quick. It's like when Luke finds out that Han and Leia are in trouble. Yeah. So he leaves his training with Yoda before he's completely like trained as a Jedi. Mm-hmm. Ooh, no, it's, it's really true. I, and like that to me was the experience of like adolescence and being a teen also where I felt like, okay, yes, like can we fast forward through all this stuff until you know, like to the point where I can do what I need to do, what I know that I want to do. Like I, I felt like a full person. I felt like I had the agency. And yet, like I, I know that being forced to kind of like sit through all that, what felt like bullshit, you know, like really now I'm going to just think of, of throwing a bull's butt forever whenever I say that word. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But no, like I, I felt like I was so eager that if I could have, I would have like zoomed right out of my life at 14, you know, to like live an adult life. But that wouldn't have given me the, you know, like grounding and patience and like understanding of myself that, you know, going all the way through high school gave me. Yeah, like there's there's a certain wisdom that comes with a lived experience. And like, it's very clear from how quickly Enkidu's like values change that he doesn't have that lived experience. And he kind of rushed into things and it's only made like matters worse for him. Yeah, and it sounds like he also wanted companionship, like being raised in solitude is hard. Um, yeah. And again, another kind of uh, line between Frankenstein and Gilgamesh, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. If I were to read this story, I would think and wonder how he felt growing up in that forest alone. And then being yeah. like, you know, meeting this this woman who represents and like is from a completely different situation. It must feel like your whole, like think of that hero's journey. Like it's so, it's such an interesting, inciting incident. And I can definitely understand how, I'm sure people have like written fascinating speculative fiction about this, you know, throughout history. But um, that that to me is kind of like the, the problem and the question of, Frankenstein's creature um, is like what what happens when you grow larger than your circumstances um, or what happens when a plan that you make only thinking of yourself ends up having consequences way beyond what you could imagine. Yeah. And like you bring up Shamat as like an emissary. And it's like really interesting to me because I think that like from a historical perspective, we don't see that kind of connection between sex and religion too often. It's very much like sanitized nowadays. Right. Just based on like the the narrative that ended up becoming dominant. Right. But I'm kind of struck by and like this is like kind of a weird pull. You, you've seen Firefly. Yeah. Right, Amanda. Uh, the character that is played by I'm going to forget the actress's name and also the character's name but the uh basically like the trained her name is, sex worker um, her name's inara oh it is inara yeah. oh i know like so inara's character is very much a diplomatic character yes but they use sex as diplomacy which is very interesting to me because i think that it's something that we don't consider nowadays especially from a western culture but is something that i think was used much more in like other cultures that aren't like predominantly white. But yeah, I mean that, you know, I'm sure I'm sure people much more um trained than us in these topics could have like a, a career's worth of conversations about them, right? And, and people Absolutely. have before. But just relating to to my experience because like that's the that's the thing I have at the, at the end of the day to see the world through. That was the experience of of like starting to have sex for me. Like it, you know, it it, it is such a it was it was world opening in in a way. And like being able to be like the most vulnerable that you can be with uh, somebody else and like really be forced to like see the world from their perspective or to realize like, oh, wow, wait, you know, if, if I'm feeling all these feelings, so is somebody else. And um, I, I don't know, like it, it, it was, it was like a, a layer of growing up that I don't mean to imply is like mandatory 
that is not required to be a full person. No, of course not. But in my particular experience, I definitely like see it as like a, a chapter in my, you know, journey of like becoming an adult, seeing the world differently, seeing other people differently. Mm -hmm. Which absolutely fits in with Nkendu's uh, situation, I think. I just like, you know, the the whole aspect of Shamat's role in the story to teach civilization through sex is like such a, like I read that and I was like, oh, that is, that is so interesting. That's like not something that would ever really play into my mind. But once it's like established in there, once it's like ingrained in there, <laughs> I like it, like it makes absolute sense to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's almost ironic too, because what we like the term civilization is is so loaded um but yes. but so often like societal rules are mostly about or are based on the like policing of sex and who gets to have it and who doesn't who like you know gets to gets to decide what's right and wrong and what's owed and legal and illegal so the fact that this is like it's just so unexpected to me that um that sex would be not just like an accepted and like integrated part of religious worship or of like diplomacy, um, but also that it's it's a way to it's not like viewed as animalistic. Like it's it's viewed as as like having structure and value and a way to impart kind of the lessons of a society to someone who grew up without them. Yeah, uh, I will say in reference to how we use the term civilization and civilized in the context of the Mesopotamian and Sumerian stories, we did talk about how basically civilization and like city building came to be in these uh in these cultures in the Inanna episode. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to that one, please like go ahead and listen to it. It's a really fascinating story and it kind of gives the context of what we're talking about with civilization and civilized in the terms of the epic of Gilgamesh. I feel like this is Spirits 3.0 where like we can build on the context we've learned in our initial um in our initial 119 episodes to, you know, inform like more detailed discussions of these cultures and, and myths. And I, that's like the goal of the podcast oh, yeah. is to be able to like build a substantial understanding of these cultures so that we can have conversations like these. Yeah. Through our own studies, through experts, through other people's voices. Like this is what we're here for. Yeah. It's it's all about the lens, baby. All right. Well, I feel like I will be waiting on tenterhooks until we get to part two. But um Wow. I'm so curious for listeners, if you grew up with this as a text that you studied at home, at school, or just in your cultural milieu, like, please let us know what you think and uh, link us to any writings or interpretations that you really enjoy. I have a feeling that I'm going to be reading about the, uh, the Gilgamesh's broader world for a long time to come. I'm very excited for it. Yes, please send those things to us. And remember, listeners, to stay creepy. Stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors. Mrs. Fields has all the Valentine's Day gifts you need. Go to mrsfields.com and use the promo code SPIRITS for 20% off any Valentine's Day gift. And Care Of makes personalized vitamins really easy to order. Go to Take Care Of and use the code SPIRITS50 for half off your first month. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff. Just one dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. 
We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.